Hi, this is Mandy. You're listening to Known. Thank you so much, listeners. You've left some very kind reviews and comments, and your feedback means so much to me. Please find me on social media and let me know how these stories are making an impact on you. Make sure you're subscribed to all the platforms so you don't miss a thing, including upcoming giveaways. Today's episode features my new friend, Jess, author of Sunlight Burning at Midnight and blogger at JessPlusTheMess.com. She's the mother of eight kids, eight kids, including Lucas, who has profound special needs. When she's not mommying eight kids, writing books, or producing her blog, She's also busy running a nonprofit called The Lucas Project. Her story is painful in some places, but so beautiful too. This busy woman gave us so much of her time and heart. We were strangers at the beginning, but now I consider her a friend forever, and I'm sure you will too. So let's get right to it. So, what is your story? My story is long. It begins in 2004 when I went to what I thought was a routine ultrasound appointment for my second child. When I showed up and I was laying there as they're doing the wand over my belly and the nurse I noticed was getting really quiet and my husband didn't come that day because he stayed home to care for our son Caleb. So I was laying there alone kind of feeling like something wasn't quite right but couldn't put my finger on it and she said I'll be right back I have to go get the doctor. She left, and the doctor returned a few minutes later, and he said, we have some major problems here. Um, Your baby suffered a stroke in utero, Mm. and the possibility of this child making it to birth is very slim, and we would suggest termination as the most viable option for you. I don't remember a whole lot after that. I remember stumbling out of the, the doctor's office and going to my car, and I didn't have a cell phone at that time, so I pulled over at a payphone and called Jason, my husband at home, and just through tears said, uh, we were just told that our baby's going to die. And he said, are you okay to drive home? And I said, I am. And he said, okay, I'll be praying. So I drove home, walked in, in the door, and he was on his knees praying. And we decided from that moment on that termination was not an option and that we were just going to trust God to either bring this baby to life or this baby was going to have life in heaven. Mm -hmm. And as the months continued moving forward, I was journaling and just crying out to God day after day, please don't let my baby die and just anything a mother would do in in that circumstance, just begging for your child's life. And every day I would feel more healthy kicks of life and thinking, is this a cruel joke? Like, I'm getting more and more attached to this child, and are they going to hand me a dead baby, you know, when it comes time to give birth? And they said, um, because the baby's head was so full of cerebral spinal fluid, it would be about a two-year-old's size at birth. So there was no way I could have a vaginal delivery. It was going to have to be a C-section. And so we scheduled that. For August 12, 2004, the doctors were amazed I even made it that far, and we had a big meeting with probably 10 specialists a week before that C-section. We all sat in a room at the hospital, big conference table, and 
they like outline this big game plan and I just remember sitting there going, I cannot believe this is happening for like to give birth to a child. Jason and I showed up August 12th. We prayed before we walked into the hospital, had the C-section. They lifted Lucas out of my belly, cut me open from one side to the other to get his head out. And he just started wailing with life and I started bawling (laughs) and I looked over at him and he was perfectly normal in every way outside of his head size from what I could tell at that time and I just thought I can't believe this was the baby that they said you know was going to die for sure so he spent two weeks in neonatal and those were really long two weeks and I had this obsessive idea that I had to pump breast milk like religiously it was just like to cope with trauma like we were talking about your mind like fixates on these certain things and so I was just pumping around the clock and then bringing the nurses these vials of breast milk and they would laugh and say you have a whole fridge full um, already but I had this idea in my head he has to have this milk for his brain development or his brain won't develop So anyway, he was discharged two weeks after that, and we went home with him and our two-year-old son, Caleb, and settled into life with this new baby who had profound special needs, but as a newborn, didn't display those really all that prominently. But as time went on, he would. He was delayed in every aspect. Mm. And we just figured out our new life. It was exhausting. We hardly ever slept. I was terrified that he would suffocate in the middle of the night because his head was so big. And if for some reason he got his head stuck, he wouldn't have been able to lift it back up. So I rarely slept. I was always watching him. Mm -hmm. And life went on. We moved into a new home that we had built. We were in the process of building that while I was pregnant with Luke. And Jason, my husband, started a gym, and that was doing really well. So we were kind of on a high. Financially, we were doing well, and Lucas was thriving, and Caleb was growing, and so we decided to have another baby. And we got pregnant fairly quickly, fairly quickly. I think the first month we were (laughs) pregnant. And about seven months into that pregnancy, Jason started having just a plethora of health problems, um, really weird things. Like he was disoriented and losing weight like crazy and like extreme thirst. And we kept bringing him to all these specialists and every specialist was like, he has type one diabetes, which was so weird at 30 years old to be diagnosed with type one diabetes. And they just all kept pointing back to that. And it was strange as well because he was a personal trainer, he was a tennis professional and a gym owner, so like the epitome of health and fitness. (laughs) And he could not get this type 1 diabetes under control. And it became like this horrible episode of House, that television show. Mm -hmm. Nobody could quite pinpoint what was going on. So he just kept losing weight. I gave birth to our baby girl in February of 2007. And he just continued to decline. And about, I think it was about June or July of 2007, a few months after I had her, I said to him, I'm just going to quick run to my dad's house. I have to pick up some stuff. My dad's house was about 15 minutes away. Are you okay to watch the three kids for a little while? Because I never really knew he would have these extreme blood sugar issues and start shaking and like sort of hallucinating and Mm. like we just get it under control. And he said, yeah, I'm feeling fine. 
So I hopped in the car, quick drove to my dad's house, um, pulled into the driveway, and my phone rang, and I answered it, and it was Jason. He said, Jess, call 911, and the phone went dead. Oh. And I was just in a complete panic, ran up to my dad's house, knocking on the door, not knocking on the door, walked into the house <laughs> um, and said, Dad, Jason just called, said I have to call 911, Can I got to get back home. And so we rushed back home, and that my driveway is full of ambulances and cars and everything, and I am just panicked about my three mm-hmm. children. Were they okay? Did he drop them? What happened? So I rush in, and a paramedic corners me, and he, he says, your kids are fine. Um, Jason had a seizure. And right before he seized, he had enough sense to put Mabel in the bouncy seat. He put Lucas in, in the bouncer thing, and... And then he put a movie on for Caleb. Like he, wow. he put all the kids where they needed to be. And then he seized until he passed out. So they rushed him to, to ER that night. And I went to ER like the longest night of my life. And a doctor came up to me as I was sitting on the floor with my sister. And he said, you know, we're just going to run. We're going to do an MRI just to rule out the possibility of a brain tumor. And I just knew it, like in that moment, like, everything that we had been going through for the past year and a half came flooding back and I just knew he had a brain tumor Mm -hmm. and he came back with the results and said it's a brain tumor and we need to prep for immediate surgery so he was rushed to the hospital a different hospital that can accommodate his needs and I was in a complete blur trying to figure out who was going to watch my kids I was still exclusively nursing Mabel So my dad got me a hotel room right across the street from the hospital where we were headed, where I could stay with Mabel and my sister. And I went back and forth all night long to like check on Jason and nurse the baby. And it was just a disaster. And I don't even remember who watched the other two kids, but somebody did. (laughs) And he had surgery and it was very successful. And they met with us the following day and said, you have a couple of options here. You can do chemo, you can do radiation, but since it's just a grade two, you could also choose the option to just watch and wait and see what it does. They said sometimes these tumors don't come back for 20 years. So, you know, you have that option where you don't have to do anything. And we just thought, yeah, let's let's pick that straw. That sounds yeah. good. Um, and we were just going to have faith, you know, that we'd been through enough, like with Lucas and then Jason and that this was this was it for our trials. Mm-hmm. So we went home like fully convinced that we wouldn't have to deal with this again for a really long time. And in that process, we accidentally got pregnant again. <laughs> so <laughs> that one was not planned, but it happened. And this is where I get the timeline really confused. I got pregnant and then Jason started having really bad symptoms again. And during this process, he was just doing quarterly MRI checkups just to confirm that the tumor wasn't doing anything. And when I was pregnant with the last baby, he went to one of these MRI checkups and he called me at home really annoyed. And he said, Jess, the tumor's back. I have to check myself into ER immediately. And we were like, okay, so now we have three kids and I'm pregnant. And Luke at this point, this was 2009, Luke at this point was screaming bloody murder nonstop 
all day, and we could not figure out what was wrong with him. Same mm-hmm. sort of situation as Basin had gone through like a year and a half earlier. Finally, they figured out through an MRI that he had Chiari malformation and a tethered spinal cord, mm-hmm. um, which basically means that his spinal cord was growing into his brain. Yeah. So I just remember, I think it was June, I had my 20-week ultrasound appointment for the new baby coming up. Lucas had brain surgery and Jason had brain surgery all within a matter of like three weeks. Wow. Um, yeah, it was a huge wow. <laughs> and I ended up falling down the stairs at, at one point during that yeah. pregnancy, basically because I had a panic attack in the m- middle of this month. And I mm-hmm. went to my doctor and he was like, Jess, you need to go home and take a bath and have a glass of wine. <laughs> I was like, what? And he said, if you don't get this stress under control, you will kill this baby mm. because there was so much going on. And so that's what I did. And <laughs> I don't know if it helped or not, but and for a doctor to prescribe that, it was like, right. it must be pretty bad. <laughs> so, so Jason had his surgery. Luke had his surgery. Lucas did fantastic. I obviously had the 20-week ultrasound appointment, and that all turned out well. There were no health problems. And then we were waiting for Jason's prognosis for what this tumor was. And I was sitting in his hospital room with his mom, and I just remember the doctor walking in, and he just stared at us both, and he said, I'm afraid I don't have very good news. Mm -hmm. And he said, we just got the lab reports back, and it's a grade 4 glioblastoma. And after all the research I had been doing for the past two years on brain tumors, I realized that that was the worst brain tumor you could have. And it typically meant a life expectancy of less than 14 months. So his mom and I just grabbed each other's hands and just wept because we both knew um, it wasn't good. So he was discharged from the hospital again three days later. He rebounded so quickly from both of his surgeries that the nurses just laughed because he was like, I'll be out of here in 48 hours. And (laughs) he typically was. But this time we did not have the option to watch and wait. And he had to begin chemo and radiation immediately. So he started those in August of 2009. I gave birth to our baby boy, Joshua, in September of 2009. And the next year was just constant... um, radiation and chemo appointments and he would try to work a little bit in the midst of all of that but finally in December he quit working for the most part other than just a few clients that he was training at the YMCA and he finally agreed to go on disability because it was just Mm -hmm. getting too hard to pay our bills and with him hardly working and I was only working part-time as a teacher at an after-school program and we were basically relying on charity and the goodness of others to Mm -hmm help pay our bills at this point. He continued to fight until August of 2010, and that's when we finally accepted the point that it was over. And we accepted hospice care into our home. He passed away on August 24, 2010. Mm-hmm. And then it was me uh, with four young children, four kids under seven, Caleb was seven, Lucas was five, Mabel was three, and Joshua was one. And I just remember being really concerned that he was going to pass away on Joshua's birthday Mm. because it was getting so close to his birthday. And obviously that did not happen, but 
we had a beautiful life celebration for him, and he was able to actually pick out his burial spot. We had a cemetery that we could walk to from our house, and he picked out the spot up on the hill so that he could, it was kind of a joke, he could watch over us up on the hill because it looked Mm -hmm. right down onto our house. And and in so many ways, it was heart-wrenching and horrible, but to have cancer off my back too was a huge blessing because cancer is a really cruel taskmaster and she doesn't have any grace. So to finally like have some breathing room again to just enjoy my children and be a mom. And um, so we took a couple of months just as a family just to kind of exhale. And I just slept. I slept like crazy. I would get up and put Caleb and Luke on the bus for school and I would go back to bed and just lay around all day. And as soon as Mabel and Josh had to take a nap, I crawled into bed and I would sleep for two hours. And I went to bed at like eight o'clock with them every night, absolutely exhausted. So that continued for a few months. And then that Halloween night, I decided to be superwoman and (laughs) take all four kids out trick-or-treating. Talk about being exhausted. (laughs) So I did that. We went out, we, you know, did all the smiley faces for the Facebook photos and to show everybody I was fine and I was coping and I could handle this. And, and then I put them all to bed that night and I hopped on my blog where I had been updating the masses throughout these three years. And a woman left a comment uh, just saying, Jess, you don't know me, but, and I have no idea why I'm even writing you this, but I feel compelled to tell you about this widower He lives in Oklahoma, and he has three young children, and he lost his wife to a brain tumor four days after Jason died. I just Mm -hmm. think you would be a source of encouragement to him. So I went to try to find this widower she was talking about. Couldn't find him, and it was just like, whatever, went to bed. The next day I got up, and I thought, well, I'll just write her and tell her I looked for him but couldn't find him. So I just zipped her a little message, and she said, oh, he's not on care pages because that's where I was blogging, and that, mm-hmm. that was my assumption. She said, he has an actual blog. Here's the address. So I went to the blog address, just kind of checked out his page, and left a message just saying, hey, if you ever want to talk, um, you know, my husband passed away four days before your wife died, and just feel free to reach out sort of thing. And he did immediately. The next day I had a message on my blog from him, <laughs> and then he was like, it might be easier to email So we started emailing constantly, like numerous emails a day, kind of like people text nowadays. (laughs) And then he said, about a week into it, I'd really like to talk on the phone if you feel like you'd be up for that. And our connection was growing very quickly um, as we were pouring out our hearts to each other through these emails. And I think there was like sort of a romantic thing going on, but neither one of us were going to admit it like a week into (laughs) finding each other. So... We got on the phone, and within a week, we were professing our love to each other, basically. Um, And he wanted to meet, and we decided that we would meet in December. We met the middle of December in Savannah, Georgia. We wanted it to be completely neutral ground without the kids, just in case it was like a complete bomb that (laughs) we were like, no, this is never going to (laughs) happen. But we met, and it was love at first sight and we almost got married in savannah georgia but we knew our families would kill us so we did not but we did get married a couple of months later and it was all very very quick and we understood that but 
from my perspective, I had been grieving the loss of Jason for about three years because of cancer. So my grieving had sort of gone through all those stages while Jason was fighting. Mm -hmm. And I knew I didn't want to be this martyr who tried to raise these four kids on my own. Like I wanted my kids to have a good dad in their life again, if that was a possibility. And they were even asking for it. Caleb would say, like, Mom, when do you think we're going to get a new dad? And, I mean, this little seven-year-old. And I'd say, honey, you know, I can't just go to Walmart and buy you a dad. <laughs> like, and I'm if a only. widow with four kids. Like, <laughs> pretty slim pickings out there, honey. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, God's plan was bigger than my plan. And mm-hmm. we were married that April. And he moved to Michigan. And a year later, we adopted each other's kids. And initially, we had seven kids under eight years old. So it was a very full house. It was crazy. But honestly, it was easier then than it is now. Now we have four teenagers. Oh, (laughs) gosh, yes. It was way easier (laughs) then than it is now. (laughs) And we just lived happily ever after. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) The end. Everything's perfect. (laughs) The end, right. Um, A few years in, he turned to me and he said, you know, I'm not really digging this Michigan snow. So do you think you'd be open to the possibility of starting over somewhere? And we landed in rural Tennessee, this big old deserted house um, on the river, 30 acres, and he renovated the whole thing. And we spent five years there, had another baby. We decided that we wanted to experience that together. So in 2015, we had Annabelle, um, our eighth and final child. While we lived out there, I wrote a book and finished my master's degree and started a nonprofit in honor of Lucas. And then this past year, we just realized that as Lucas um, was getting older and his needs were getting more intense, that we really needed to surround ourselves with more resources and support and community. And that being so isolated was just becoming too difficult. And we needed to downsize a little bit. Our life, we just felt like we were constantly working because it was such a big house. So much land in the middle of nowhere. um, It was really difficult to find help. So we made a very rash decision. We're really good at making rash decisions. (laughs) Once we're done with something, we're just done. (laughs) We made the rash decision to find a house closer to Nashville where there would be more resources. And we found the perfect house. Uh, The criteria basically had to fit Luke's needs very, very well. And this house was perfect for that. Packed up and moved the day after Christmas. Um, Oh, wow. Right. We're crazy. (laughs) We're just, like, done. And we have been here now for, I don't know, how many months is that? Six or seven months. And it's nice. We have parks right down the road. And there's a big, inclusive playground that Luke loves to play at. And the schools have some more resources. And it fits for now. So... This is where we'll be for the time being. Tell us about the nonprofit you started. Well, when Lucas was born, I knew that I wanted to start a nonprofit someday in his honor, and I knew it was going to be called the Lucas Project. I had absolutely no idea what this would entail, what supports it would offer, no vision for it at all until we moved to rural America (laughs) in Tennessee and realized there was nothing and we were drowning. My husband ended up in ER twice with panic attacks that resembled heart attacks because Mm -hmm. there was just no support. We couldn't get plugged in anywhere. There weren't any churches that would offer special needs ministries. 
there was just nothing for Lucas as he was getting older and older. And nobody really wanted to get all that involved because he was getting older and older. He wasn't this cute little, Mm -hmm. you know, special needs kid anymore. He was now a teenager with profound special needs and strength. So more difficult to handle. And I realized after talking to numerous parents who had kids with special needs that what caretakers needed more than anything was a break. And I think there are a lot of nonprofits that do really good work that focus on children, but there are very few nonprofits that focus on the caretakers. And if you don't focus on the caretakers, I think it's really difficult for the caretakers to be their best self for the kids. I think 2017, I had no idea what I was doing. I do not have a knack for business at all. I'm very much a creative. I just printed off all the nonprofit paperwork off the internet and started getting to work, filling it all out, gathering all the materials, figuring out how to raise money, which I guess because I have a decent social media following I and I can tell a story through the written word as I was telling my story and just being very authentic and honest and vulnerable about our difficulties with Luke, people would respond and the money just started trickling in. Mm-hmm. And before I knew it, I was like, wow, we have $2,000 in our <laughs> bank account just from me sharing our story. And so we officially got the word that the Lucas Project was an official nonprofit. And our initial goal was just to provide a monthly respite day for caretakers of special needs children. And a ranch in Savannah, Tennessee offered their facility. I Mm -hmm. hired a director and we just started recruiting supplies from local businesses, just basically going business to business. Hey, could you donate granola bars? Could you donate waters? Could you donate craft supplies? Um, And the donations poured in. And we held our first day. We had, I believe, 15 kids that first day. And it's completely free of cost to the parents. Six hours on a Saturday, one to seven. And it's crafts and outdoor play and a free meal and snacks in a completely safe environment with a teacher who has a degree. And we have now held that chapter for a year. And we are gearing up to start another chapter now in Gallatin, where we live. I've hired a few potential candidates for the director position because this isn't something I want to direct so much. (laughs) I really enjoy the CEO role, but I need a break as much as any other mom with a special needs child. So I started it because we desperately needed the break and I drop off my kid just like everybody else. And it's for the child with special needs and all the siblings. Okay. Um, because the goal is to truly give the caretakers a break where if they want to go on a date or take a nap or go grocery shopping <laughs> or whatever that may be, here is six hours to just do you complete self-care. And they show up so much refreshed and just, you know, ready to face it again. And they know that they have another break coming up the following month. I think it's been a really positive thing for the community. And we've had a lot of positive feedback and I would just love to see this grow where there's a Lucas Project chapter in every city in America. I just think it's such a desperate need for caretakers and it's so difficult often I think as a caretaker to admit that and I've tried to pinpoint that more lately and I think a lot of the difficulty comes because a lot of these children weren't supposed to live so they're Mm -hmm. you know miracle babies so to complain or say that this is hard, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of guilt attached to that because 
this child wasn't even supposed to live. So how, who am I to complain that I now have to take care of this child or complain about how difficult the needs are or whatever it may be. So I think a lot of caretakers just really suffer in silence. And I hope this can alleviate some of that stress and anxiety associated with caring for these children. Absolutely. If there's a caretaker listening right now who says, how do I get my kid there? What do they need to do? Well, <laughs> they need to go to the lucasproject.org and there's um, steps that you have to take, but it's mainly just filling out paperwork. And like I said, we only have a chapter available in Savannah right now, mm-hmm. but we will have another chapter in Gallatin Lord willing, by this September, we have a space that's already been donated. And the next step is just hiring a director at this point. But um, the lucasproject.org has all the steps that you need to take. It has an email address on there if, if the caretaker has any additional questions and just all of the paperwork that needs to be filled out. Okay, I'll link that in the show notes. What if somebody okay. is listening in a different city and they want to get the Lucas Project started in their city? Is there a way? they can participate in getting that done? I love that idea, and that's my initial goal. I would love to have a conversation with them, and if they would be interested in partnering with us with the fundraising aspect, that could absolutely be a possibility. But right now, the funds just aren't there to start them all over the world. So if, you know, the Lord wants to drop a million dollars in my lap, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I will start the Lucas Project everywhere, everywhere that people want it. So uh, we'll pray for that's that. Where we are with a million dollars. Exactly. <laughs> right. A million dollars in my lap. Well, if there's somebody listening who wants to drop a million dollars in your lap, same link and email address. Right. Just <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> we'll link to that too. Perfect. Just tell us about Lucas. A typical day in the life of Lucas. Um, well, I'm known for my raw vulnerability, so <laughs> I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The Good. summer is extremely difficult. Um, kids like Lucas, Lucas has profound special needs. Um, he's primarily not verbal. He can say a few words, um, eat, drink, you know, all the important things in his <laughs> world. And he is mobile, but limited. He needs assistance in order to be mobile. So that means that he needs to have an adult with him at all times if he's going to not be in his, we have a bed that the the state provided. That's like a, a giant playpen, I guess, for lack of a better word. And he does mm-hmm. spend quite a bit of time in there watching his videos or listening to Pandora music. And we're in the process of creating a sensory room right outside of his bedroom that he'll be able to roam freely in. And I think that'll be a huge asset to him. But mm-hmm. We don't have that yet, and this summer has been really intense because he thrives on his structure. He would wake up every day and say, go to school, go to school. (laughs) No, Luke, we're not going to school. It's summer, but he can't comprehend that. So so we would try try to take him out at least once a day, either walk him around our property for an hour or bring him to a park. To take him anywhere is a huge undertaking because... One, our kids have to sacrifice a lot if Luke comes because Luke is done after about an hour and then they have to be done. And oftentimes we'll just divide and conquer. Unfortunately, we'll take two cars and when Luke is done, one of us goes home with Luke and one of us stays with the other kids. And that's just our life right now. Somebody has to feed him for every meal or snack, like bite by bite. 
if you were to put a meal in front of Luke, like on a plate, he would try to put the entire meal in his mouth (laughs) all at once. Mm -hmm. He needs assistance with everything, showering, which his birthday's coming up. And we actually raised enough money to get him an accessible bathtub, which will be a huge blessing in our home. So that's coming. I think Ryan's going to pick up everything for that tomorrow and he's going to start that project. But because right now we have to actually get in the shower with him to keep him safe. (laughs) So the bathtub option will be huge because he loves baths and he would sit in the bath for an hour if if he had a bathtub. So (laughs) well, that'll that'll be a good birthday. (laughs) Right. That'll be something else for him to do. But he goes back to school next week and his world will be great again once school starts. (laughs) I think here in Tennessee, the difficulty is that Summer school is rarely offered, and for these kids, that's really difficult because they Mm -hmm. thrive on structure, and you take that away, and they are just lost. So going back to the Lucas Project, in the future, I would love for the Lucas Project to be able to offer a few weekdays throughout the summer uh, Mm -hmm. for kids as well because that's just a big void where we live. You said that there can be a lot of shame and complaining about how hard it is to be a parent or a caretaker for a child with special needs. I think we can all identify with something like for me, it was how long I wanted a child. And now that I have a three-year-old, I feel like I can't say how tired I am or how much I need a break because I got what I wanted. (laughs) I shouldn't need a break, but it's true. And for some reason we shame each other for that. And then we shame ourselves Um, And you also talked about how, before you started talking about Lucas, about how vulnerable, how, how did you put it? Raw raw vulnerability. Raw vulnerability. And you almost said it apologetically. Mm -hmm. And something that I want to get across through this podcast ministry is that shame is a tool of Satan. There are times when we should feel guilty because we've done something wrong. But I think that a lot of shame is piled on us to knock us down. And I just like that you said part of your reason for starting this nonprofit, part of your goal is for people to not even have to complain when they want to, to just provide that relief. And I have the same, the same thoughts about my four-year-old because <laughs> it took a long time to even conceive her because we were older. Mm-hmm. And I wanted her so desperately, and I miscarried the first baby that we um, conceived together. So we got pregnant with her, and it has been a roller coaster. (laughs) It has been so hard, like, packing on a toddler with four teenagers and one with profound special needs. And we look at each other a lot, and we're like, what did we do? (laughs) We love her to death, but, and I wouldn't, you know, take her back for anything, but still it's a lot of work. And we made our lives a lot more difficult by tacking on one more, but it was our choice and it still is hard. And that's that, you know, nothing we can do about it now. I think, I think you just put it into words for me. It's, it's not shame. It's truth. It just is hard. No matter how Mm -hmm. much you want something like marriage, no matter how much, Before you get married, you want that person. It's going to be hard. And there are going to be times that you're going to think, why did I do this? <laughs> what was I thinking? Right. <laughs> and then, you know, you realize why you did it all over again. But, yeah, that shame, it's just, it's a struggle. I think some of the, the apologetic tone that 
you may have heard in me even saying that is being more in the public eye with my child with special needs and other parents maybe are. I do get a lot of feedback. Um, (laughs) Some of it negative, some of it extremely hurtful. To see change and to change people's lives, I do absolutely believe you have to be as vulnerable as possible. All right, so back to Luke. Even now, even after spending time in schools with children with a range of special needs, I find it difficult to know exactly how to interact with the child or the or an adult with special needs or the family. And especially now that I have a child who's old enough to start noticing differences and asking questions, I want to respond to him and to the child and the family in the most loving and compassionate way possible. But sometimes I just don't know. Is this does this family prefer me to ask or to allow my child to ask, why do you walk differently than me? Or do we just pretend like there's no obvious difference? Or what's the best way, in your opinion, to handle coming in contact with strangers that you don't know the background for? Yeah, I don't know if I am qualified to answer for everybody because I think mm-hmm. I often take a different take um, than maybe other people do. I'm I'm extremely open to questions. I think overall staring is a problem, mm-hmm. but if you're willing to come up and have a conversation um, and try to engage with me or my child, that makes all the difference. Even if somebody were to come up, you know, I know kids are extremely honest and we've had kids say, what's wrong with him? Mm-hmm. And I'll just get on their level or one of my other kids will get on their level and they'll just explain he was born this way and when he was in mommy's tummy, his his brain kind of exploded. That's how my kids will <laughs> word it. And um, this is just the way God made him. This is just how he is. And that seems to su- suffice for children. I think oftentimes it's the adults that make it kind of awkward where they're like, don't stare, don't do this, don't look. And I don't think most of us have any problem answering questions, even even if if they're ignorant questions, but they come right. from a, a sincere, heartfelt source. That's not an issue for us. And I don't know. I love to educate people. That's what drives me. That's what gets me out of bed in, in the morning is awareness and so, but there could be a mom too who's, who just is like, just leave me alone. I don't want yeah. to talk about it. So I don't know. It could be different for everybody. Is I there, think most parents love to talk about their kids. Yeah. If you give them, you give them an opportunity to do that, they'll be happy to take it. Is there a question that we should never ask? Um, I think it's more just wording for me, like the R word. <laughs> yeah. Will that will get me pretty hot and bothered pretty quickly. Um, one man I can remember we were at the park with Luke recently and Luke will just kind of reach out and grab for somebody if he walks by him and I understand that people don't really understand this about Luke um, mm-hmm. we haven't brought Luke to a restaurant in years because honestly <laughs> we would walk through with him and he would try to grab everybody's food as he walked by them <laughs> or grab everybody's hair or whatever that looks like and we were at this park and this grumpy old man walks by Luke and Luke reaches out and grabs him and he whips around with a scowl on his face and he was like, get a hold of your kid. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, sir. I said, he doesn't know what he's doing. I apologize. But and as soon as he saw Luke, 
he realized like Luke didn't know what he was doing right. and I think he felt bad about it but still his reaction was just so cruel like yeah. get your kid away from me he's gross I think that's that's hurtful mm-hmm. I do see that with children and and their parents like gross because mm-hmm. Luke will drool or Luke when he eats is not clean it's mm-hmm. like slobbery and it's in his <laughs> hair and in his ears and but he can't help it and we can't help it we're doing the best we can yeah. <laughs> so, I think it's this gross factor yeah. and that's rare most people are like oh Luke and, <laughs> but there are those occasional people who view him just as gross yeah I would be offended if somebody thought my child was gross too yeah and yeah. And like we were saying, there are just mean people in the world and, mm-hmm. you know, you can't let them ruin your day. It's been a very slow lesson that I've had to learn, but, but there's a bunch of good people too. Yeah. You seem to kind of face life with a sense of humor and almost, I won't say irreverent, but. That's okay. You can say that. That's, um, I don't mind that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's what I really mean, but almost just an unashamed honesty and sense of humor. And, but there's this underlying joy. And then hearing your whole story, where in the world does that come from? Because you've had a lot of stuff that could have made you a very bitter, reclusive, <laughs> angry person. And you, you're not. You, I've enjoyed this conversation with you, even though there have been really hard things that we've talked about, where do you get that joy and that attitude that you have? Um, it's not always there. <laughs> with that. The anger sure. can come out in full Absolutely. force at times. Um, I think um, I've always been a fighter. And in the past couple of years, are you familiar with the Enneagram? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm okay. obsessed with the Enneagram. <laughs> me too. Okay. That has helped to clarify a lot of things for me. I'm a one. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of ones even hate being ones, but I'm like, I love being number one. <laughs> like That totally resonates with me. And I think for a long time I felt shame because I was so driven. And um, I'm very driven to make change in the world. And I think that as the Enneagram brought that into my focus that that's just how God made you. You're very driven. You're very passionate. I've been given a skill set, I believe, one through my upbringing. I was the oldest of 12 kids. Oh, wow. So raising this many children is almost like just second nature to me, really. (laughs) It still is stressful. But that me, being the oldest of 12 kids, would eventually have eight children. You know, I already have this skill set growing up where I was leaned on a lot to help Mm -hmm. with the other kids. People say a lot, like, you just seem to have a ton of energy. And it's not that I have a ton of energy. I don't think I'm very disciplined. So I'm in bed. I'm asleep by 10 every night. We eat very healthy. I make sure that I get my self-care in through walking and yoga up at 7. I think those practices in my life help me to maintain joy and thankfulness. Mm -hmm. And even simplicity so that things don't start to overwhelm me because I notice for myself when I'm not getting the sleep, when I'm not incorporating the self-care, when I'm not eating well, my anger comes out in full force, which is where ones do go to. Yeah. I mean, we are 
very angry people. We just try to hide it. <laughs> we don't want people to know there's an anger like bubbling mm-hmm. beneath the surface. And maybe that, I know when Jason was dying even, when he had cancer for three years, and I talk about this in my book, I was extremely angry all the time. That was like my go-to emotion mm-hmm. so that I wouldn't have to be sad. Oh, I was yeah. just pissed off all the time. And I see that even when life gets too overwhelming now in a blended family with eight kids, with a child with profound special needs, anger is the first thing I'll go to. And my husband's starting to figure that out about me. And he's (laughs) extremely supportive, which without him, I would be a disaster. He's a nine, a peacemaker. So a perfect compliment to my very driven one nature. But I say to people, too, I'm very different in real life than I am online. (laughs) While you might have this snarky, irreverent humor online, I'm kind of awkward. And until I get to really know you and trust you, it's a lot more difficult for me in real life because there's more of a vulnerability there, I think, where you can't hide behind a screen. Well, you mentioned your book. It's called Sunlight Burning at Midnight. I love the title. So Thank tell us you. what your book is about, and tell me about the title. Um, it's the story you just heard, but in <laughs> way more detail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some irreverent parts, um, some humor, and the title comes from Francesca Battistelli's song. I can't remember the title of the song or the name of the song now, but in it, it's the chorus is like sunlight burning at midnight. I heard that song while I was driving to my former mother-in-law's house. Jason was at home basically uh, during his last days. He was dying, and I had the four kids in the car, and that song came on, and I just started bawling. I had to pull over to the Mm -hmm. side of the road just weeping because I thought, like, sunlight burning at midnight, like, that's that's unthinkable. The sun Mm -hmm. never burns at the midnight hour. Just like my life will never be beautiful again like it's absolutely mm-hmm. unthinkable it's there's no way that we can ever get there again this miraculous concept of and then it did occur you know mm-hmm. my the sun did burn again at the midnight hour so that song has always held really special meaning to me and if somebody wants to buy your book where can they find it Amazon, Barnes and Noble, my website. If you order it through my website, I'm happy to autograph any of them. Just let me know. Send me a message. The last question that I ask everyone that I talk to on the show is because of your story, what do you know about God that everyone else may not know? That his ways are far higher than I can ever comprehend. And maybe other people know that. I'm sure other people know that. But I feel like I know that I know that I know that I don't see the end result. So it's been a long process to get here. Now at 42 years old, where I truly just try to take it moment by moment and just trust that he has it all figured out. His ways are higher than mine. He is God, and I am not. That's what it boils down to. Well, thank you. Thank you. This was fun. I enjoyed <laughs> getting to know you. The same. I, I feel like we're friends. We were chatting. I okay. know. <laughs> Next time I come to Birmingham, we can. Yes! Yay for new friends!
What a story. I hope you found hope, encouragement, and compassion through her story. You can find links to the Lucas Project, Jess's blog, and contact info, and how to enter a giveaway for her book in the show notes. Go to mandymcd.com to find links to all of my social media to enter to win. I wish I could win it. It's definitely a book on my list. As always, like, subscribe, share, give a review. Your feedback is so helpful to me, but it also lets other people know that their story is known. Don't forget to check the show notes to get in touch with Jess, find her blog, buy her book, all the things I know you're going to want to do. I leave you with this blessing from 1 Kings 8. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time.